I'm Miles, and I'm here to understand the mysteries of romance novels. And I'm Megan Bob, and I'm here to help with the aid of one of my favorite romance novels, The Heiress Effect by Courtney Milan, because I got 10 points on the cheap pop quiz. Yeah, now I have to read this book, and by have to, I mean get to. This is the next wrestling fan, After Dark. In this episode, Miles discovers the seething hotbed of political tensions, class, and race issues that make up 19th century Cambridge. We meet an uncle who everyone will want to murder. A cactus gets destroyed, and we learn about dyes and colors like fuchsine. Fuchsine. <laughs> and its place in the sartorial scene of long ago. Miles, welcome to another episode of The Next Wrestling Fan After Dark. How are you feeling? Because we are all about feelings today. Yeah, no, it's great to be here. I'm really excited to get into this book with you, Bob. I went on a real journey with this one. It took me a while to get through it. I'm sorry for those of you who've been waiting. Um, It took me a minute to get through this book. Well, if you'll indulge me for a bit, I have another short essay on romance novels for you. Please, please. So in case you weren't still angry about the reputation of romance novels, here's a quote to stoke those fires, because today's theme is romance novels are being attacked not only from the outside, but from the inside. And it's men and white people, as you might expect. What? No. I know. Who would have seen this? Come on. Those two groups have never collectively done anything wrong. No, blameless. So this is from an article in The Guardian by Lois Beckett titled Fifty Shades of White, The Long Fight Against Racism in Romance Novels. And this is the quote. Romance readers compound the sin of liking happy, sexy stories with the sin of not caring much about the opinions of serious people, which is to say men. (laughs) They are openly scornful of the outsiders who occasionally parachute in to report on them. In late 2017, Robert Gottlieb, the former editor of The New Yorker and unsurpassable embodiment of the concept, Auguste Literary Man, (laughs) wrote a jocular roundup of that season's best romances in the New York Times book review. He opined that romance was a, quote, healthy genre and that its effect was, quote, harmless, I would imagine. Why shouldn't women dream? Wow. Wow. So, yeah, let's all take a second of silence for any woman that has ever had sex with Robert Gottlieb. (laughs) I'm so sorry, women. Yeah, no, it's just that's a real shame. Yeah, I know. Like, oh, my God, if that's your stance on this, I can't imagine what you are like in bed. Tragic, one assumes. It's like, yeah, I guess women can be people, you know, what's the harm in it? Like, you know, it's not (laughs) ideal, obviously. (laughs) And so now that we're reminded of the shittiness coming at romance from the outside, let us turn to some of the shittiness coming from inside the house. Mm. So we read The Heiress Effect for this bonus episode. This book has two separate romance stories in it. One which is the focus of the book, and one which serves as a related B-plot to the book. The B-plot romance features a character who is an Indian Cambridge student studying law. Now, I chose this book for a couple of reasons, but one reason is that it's one of the few books within the Regency or even historical romance genre that features a character of color in a romance and is one of the few that is written by a woman of color. And I was also going to ask you, like, I've never heard of a Regency romance novel or a Regency anything bringing in somebody from the subcontinent. 
Yes! Isn't that an interesting take on colonialism? Oh my god. So romance, much like wrestling, has a real race problem. There are older, more entrenched factions of the romance community that just don't value, prioritize, or even tolerate racial diversity in romance novels. Sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's political, and sometimes it's the lies of what makes quote-unquote business sense. People have started demanding diversity in romance, but there are persistent and insidious claims that characters of color won't be relatable to white women. And for some white readers, that is true and gross. (laughs) Beverly Jenkins, renowned and longtime author of historical romance novels focusing on Black American characters, puts it thus, quote, people say, well, I can't relate, Jenkins told NPR a few years ago after watching white readers simply walk past her table at a book signing. She's hella famous, by the way. Beverly Jenkins is very famous. (laughs) You can relate to shapeshifters. You can relate to vampires. You can relate to werewolves, but you can't relate to a story written by and about Black Americans. So when the Hugo controversy happened, when Puppygate happened in 2015, I was covering that at the time. And I remember just reading the manifestos of these white dudes who Mm -hmm. did not understand how anyone could enjoy a book where, like, the women were the heroes and rescuing the men or something like that, where these gender roles were subverted. How could anyone, they said that's so unbelievable. It's like refuted by science. And these were people who wrote sci-fi. And I'm like, I don't know, dude. What about your series about the kids with psychic powers? Is that, I have a hard time relating to that. (laughs) It's infuriating. It is. So maybe this problem with the readership is part of why the Romance Writers Association, or RWA, has a long history of issues with racism. Two notable examples from recent years showcase how it's not getting much better either. So in 2018, an almost universally lauded book by Alyssa Cole, a writer of color, called An Extraordinary Union, did not even get nominated for a Rita Award that year. The Rita Award is named after, well, I should say Rita, named after Rita Clay Estrada, first RWA president. The Ritas are like the Oscars for romance novels, And like the Oscars, are so very, very white. The entire set of nominees in the short historical category that year were white, by the way. Mm. Shocking. Shocking. So, Courtney Milan, the author of The Heiress Effect, herself is a woman of color. Her mother is Chinese. She was a member of the RWA and tried to address racism within it, among other issues. It's not as though the RWA places a lot of stock in sexuality or gender diversity either, as only as recently as 2005 did they even start to address the fact that maybe they should change the definition of romance from between a man and a woman to between two people, (laughs) which also excludes polyamory from consideration, you'll note. About consenting adults. Yeah, exactly. According to the RWA, romance looks a very specific way. It's cishet white and written by white ladies. Oh, and also everyone in the books is usually rich. We'll get to that another day, but don't forget, rich. So Courtney Milan tries to address the fact that the main organization for supporting romance authors has a real race problem. To the surprise of very few, racial hegemony doesn't take kindly to threats to its power. Again, shocking. This is all like, oh man, things no one would have ever seen coming except everyone who's ever been in the world. Courtney Milan was outspoken and frank about questionable things like having a Trump supporter in charge of buying books for a major retailer. And as we all know, you have to be nice about racism. Courtney mm-hmm. Milan isn't nice about racism and people didn't like that. I won't go into the entire thing because it's quite involved. 
but it's ended with an apology from the RWA and a commitment to do better in the future. But that's been something they've been saying since 2018. This whole thing is far more nuanced than I'm making it sound. And I recommend that if you're interested, you do some reading online to get a fuller picture of the whole story. But I feel pretty confident in saying that Courtney Milan's critiques are well-founded. So to bring in some more numbers, The Ripped Bodice, a romance-only bookstore located in LA, which is definitely on my to-visit list, published The State of Racial Diversity in Romance Publishing 2019, and several damning numbers emerged from this. Most of the major romance publishers had a small improvement in diversity of their publishing from writers of color, but only just. The report states that, quote, for every 100 books published by the leading romance publishers in 2019, only 8.3 were written by people of color. That's not great. That compares to 7.7 7 in 2018, 6.2 in 2017, and 7.8 in 2016. So an increase of 0.4% industry-wide over four years. So it's preferable to a decrease yeah. or a stagnation, but only very barely. Yeah, this particular four years, you know, I, I guess a decrease wouldn't have shocked me, but... That's true, but romance couldn't even manage a half percent increase. And when it comes to major romance publishers, 78% of major romance publishers still had less than 10% of the books they published in 2019 written by people of color. And if we return to that 2018 Rita that Alyssa Cole was noticeably not nominated for, the other entrants were not only exclusively written by white women. The main characters were without a single exception white. Courtney Milan is a significant outlier as a woman of color writing historical romance who has achieved mainstream popularity, championed social awareness, and social justice within her books, and included racially diverse characters in several of her books. And I want to be clear and say that Courtney Milan is not the first or even the most well-known writer of color, but she is the one whose work I've read the most of. And if you are interested in historical fiction or diverse fiction, Beverly Jenkins is basically the queen of it, writing diverse historical romance since the mid-1990s. Other notable authors of color that deserve a mention are Alyssa Cole, Talia Hibbert, Salika Snyder, Sonali Dev, Sherry Thomas, and Jeannie Lynn. There are many others out there that I probably haven't even heard of yet because my own reading list is pretty white. As you heard from those numbers, romance as a whole is pretty white. Yep. I didn't even choose the most racially diverse of Milan's books because this one grapples with a very wide set of issues and I like how many and how interestingly it covers them and some of the characters it introduces. But hopefully this gives you at least a taste of both the racial exclusion that romance novels support and hopefully reading The Eris Effect showcases how fucking great racially diverse historical romance is and how desperately we need more of it. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, this book, I did not like. Tessa Dare, I was like, oh, wow. Like the first one, when we read Dutch Steel, I was like, wow, hints of progressivism. Like, you know, there's like a little <laughs> bit of feminist stuff in here. That's fucking great. And this is just like fucking <laughs> smash the system, comrades. I'm like, whoa, okay. Sure. Yes, it is very much that. Courtney Milan's books are militant in almost all areas, and I cherish them for it. But they are not, I will say, as fun or funny as Tessa Dare. But I go to Courtney Milan for different things. So yeah. this is definitely a different side. It was the sort of thing where I wasn't loving it as a romance novel for a while. Like, I can understand that. And then when we got to the end, and I wasn't sure I was even in, how much I was even enjoying the book, really. But when I saw where it was going and we, when we got to the end and it nailed the ending, I was like, oh, fuck yes. This is great. 
Courtney Milan is a master of nailing endings whenever you are not sure that there is a happy ending possible. That was my experience. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that because uh, I'm a white dude, which means you get to hear about my experience all the time. We're not heard from enough. <laughs> it's so true. Miles, yeah. it's been five minutes and I haven't heard a white man say something. I'm I know. dying I'm here. so sorry. Look, there's not enough of us in the world. Exactly. I mean, and with that, let us get to Miles' mansplanation. <laughs> Okay, so Jane Fairfield has a very complicated problem. Most of the problems in this book are complicated, in fact, I think you'll find. Yeah. So she is a bastard. Yes. uh, And I believe an orphan who inherited 100,000 pounds from her real father, whom she'd never met. She and her half-sister, Emily, are under the care of their uncle, Titus. Jane's fortune is large enough that, in theory, basically anybody would want to marry her despite her parentage. Emily, on the other hand, the quote-unquote purebred sister, is epileptic. And as a result, Titus, who is the fucking worst? Such a bag of shit. Refuses to let her out of the house and keeps bringing in quack physicians to electroshock her and shit. Yep. I also want to mention at this point... In addition to all the great, like, race, gender, class stuff that's in this book, some really, really fantastic positive depictions of disability. Not just Emily, but uh, Oliver's aunt later on in a certain way. Yeah, I almost forgot about her. She's awesome, too. She's great. We'll get to her. But uh, I read a review of this book that talked about how Emily's disability is part of her, but doesn't define her as a character. And I thought that was really well put. Uh, So anyway... Jane takes care of Emily as best she can and spends some of her vast sums to bribe the doctors to say nothing's wrong and go away. Uh, But there is a rub. See, Titus is Emily's legal guardian. And the moment Jane marries some dude and goes off to wherever he lives and basically becomes his property. (laughs) Yep. uh, She will no longer be able to protect her sister because she's not going to be around. So she has devised a plan to scare men away from marrying her, despite the enormous wealth bonus involved. She is going to dress horribly, insult everybody at every party she attends, but like in a really like wide-eyed, like honest kind of way, so they can't get mad at her, like she doesn't understand what she's doing, she's just super socially awkward. Basically, she's pretending to be the worst sort of socially inept person in the fucking world, which helpfully she kind of is? Yeah, a little bit. You know, she would never be intentionally rude or anything, but she cannot shut up. And she certainly doesn't have any of the social training that you're expected to have when you've got this much money. So she's basically just amping her own personality up to 11 in the finest tradition of pro wrestling. And now (laughs) she has every gentleman in Cambridge laughing at her behind her back, talking shit about her behind her back, and most importantly, not trying to marry her. So, as the book begins, Jane is going to this party with her friends, the Johnson twins, who are uh, really just enjoying giving each other knowing looks and muffled giggles as they help Jane pick out terrible things to wear. Mm. The party is being put on by a dude named Bradenton, and also in- Ah, fuck him. Yeah, fuck him. And also in attendance is Oliver Marshall, our protagonist. Oliver is also a bastard. He is the bastard son of a duke, though, and he has received a good education and is now a politician, trying to help working people by pushing a reform bill through Parliament. Now, he's at the party. He's in Cambridge at all. He's He lives in London, but he's in Cambridge because he is courting Bradenton's support for the bill. 
Bradenton is an asshole who hates poor people. So the yep. hope is that if he gets behind the reform bill, all the other assholes who hate poor people will get behind it too, despite the fact that they are, you know, assholes who hate poor people and normally wouldn't support it. So basically Oliver is a Democrat. He's he's a he's a Democrat. <laughs> and like even more so when you realize that Oliver is a dude who had revolutionary ideas, who was broken down and successfully tamed by the system. So now he sits and listens and smiles and does all the things he thinks he needs to do to get ahead, because the more power he gets, the better it'll be for everybody. Because, you know, if only the right person were put in charge of the system, the system would be less evil, Oliver thinks to himself, but not really, but but really. <laughs> if only I can throw my principles in the lake long enough to get power, then I'll, I'll go back and fish him out again, and surely they'll be as good as new. Surely. <laughs> oh, brutal. So, yeah, he's like the Democratic Party, basically. He's Roasted. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, Jane does her thing, and everybody laughs at her, and Oliver thinks, what a bunch of shitbags, but he doesn't say anything, because the shitbags are who he's out here performing for. But then Bradenton is like, he calls him into his office like, hey, Oliver, you know what? It's all fun and games for this uh, this Jane Fairfield lady to show up and make an ass out of herself. You know, it's funny for a while, but at a certain point, it stops being a good time and starts being, wait, did that woman insult me? <laughs> so here's what I'm going to do for you, Oliver. I'm going to give you your parliament vote. But first, you have to subject Jane to some kind of like public humiliation so she learns her lesson, knock her down a few pegs. And Oliver's like, no. But secretly, he's like, maybe, but no. No, I would never do that. No, unless I would. But no. But maybe. <laughs> so at this point, you think, or at least I thought, I knew where this book is going. This is very easy. This is telegraphed from a mile away. This is fucking 10 things I hate about you. Like, mm -hmm. Oliver is going to become friends with Jane. He's going to lead her on for a while. He's going to get close to her. And just when he's about to spring the trap or whatever on her, he's going to realize he actually loves her. But just as he's about to tell her that, she finds out about the whole bribe thing and tells him to take a hike. So he has to convince her that the bribe didn't matter. And he actually does love her, which is like standard stuff. But it can definitely be, you know, good if done right. It can yeah. be okay. But uh, that's that's not really what this book is doing, it turns out, or at least not in the way I thought it was. It kind of is what the book is doing, which is brilliant, but it's not in, in this way, uh, even close. So Oliver meets up with Jane a couple of times, like randomly. He's not even he's told Bradenton he's not going to do it. He's like, whatever, I'm you know, I'm not doing this for you. And Bradenton's like, oh, yeah, I mean, you will be. But <laughs> they just like run into each other on the street and they're just like immediately gaga for each other which i during my reading of this book did not buy yeah i know i <laughs> it's not a relationship that i especially gravitate towards or one that i think of as like this is a hot sexy burning fiery passion it's sort of like oh these are two people with very similar traumas i can see how they would get along I was going to ask you is there such a thing as weird chemistry between romantic leads in novels um Yes, I think so. Every time these two had these like really deep conversations, I wanted their like throbbing boners to get out of the way. Yeah, I would say that this is the rare romance novel in which the romantic relationship is easily the least interesting aspect of it. And in some ways, I regret that that is the second book I have had you read. <laughs> but in other ways, I feel like 
I needed it to be this one because it's so rich in every other regard. Yeah, it's it's so interesting that like like you warned me that it wasn't going to be as sexy, but like it's really not interested. Yeah, it's definitely a book in which one of the least interesting things that happens in it is that they have sex. <laughs> okay, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, while they're on the street, uh, we meet Oliver's brother, I think, half-brother? Yeah, Sebastian. Oh, no, Sebastian is actually not his brother, but Sebastian is part of his same, like, gang of cool dudes who grew up together. They're not? I thought they were, like, half-brothers. I think they are half-cousins. Okay. Yeah, so uh, Sebastian is the subject of the next book, presumably, if I'm reading my cues right. Yes, he is. And I also did a little bit of research, and Oliver is the son of the subjects of a a prior book. Like, the Duke that he's the bastard son of is, like, the main character of another uh, Courtney Milan book, so. Um, Actually, his adopted father, who is, like, a former pugilist, is the main subject of it, and he's fucking great. Oh, it's not the Duke, it's the, I got it. No, that makes sense. Oh, yeah. So then uh, later at another party, they have this private conversation where he basically outs her, um, saying that Jane is way too smart to not be doing all this shit intentionally. But since he is incredibly ambitious and she would do nothing but actively drag his political career down if he married her, uh, he has no interest in doing that. And the two of them can be friends and Jane won't have to keep up the act 24-7, which is a huge relief for her. Yeah. Also, and this is a point they keep coming back to for good reason, if Jane were married to a politician, she would have to act like a politician's wife and tamp down on her own extremely fun, but super inappropriate and not politician's wifey personality. And, yeah. like, not only does she not want to do that, but Oliver doesn't want to do that. He's like, look, you're pretty cool. Like, I, I think you're a pretty amazing person and you don't want to marry me. Like, what would you do? So that's, just like, totally out. But they are mad hot for each other. Yeah. Now, at this point, we get an interlude with Emily, who is the sister again, who bails on her uncle's house for a trip into town where she meets a hot law student from India named Anjan Bhattacharya. I believe I am yep. pronouncing that right. She uh, starts sneaking out to meet him before too long, and they have several very deep conversations about racism and colonialism, and I really wish I could get more into them because there is so much in this book. Yeah. But honestly, it's less important to the plot than to making these two characters, particularly Anjan, into well-rounded people, which it does a really good job of doing. I really like his thing about, like, you know, he's come here and he has to kind of pretend to be English, you know, basically. Yeah. But, he, but he's never going to do it well enough that people won't be racist at him. But, like, maybe he can do it well enough they'll throw him a bone, which he compares to, like, how England is treated the country. And it's really good stuff. Yeah, it's so good. Emily and, and Anjan are, like you mentioned, they're pretty secondary to the main story. The main story is happening with Jane, who runs into Oliver again at a bookstore. Like, the first half of this book basically is the two of them running into each other and talking. So the bookstore, she's buying these novels for her sister. They're the Mrs. Larriger series, I think. Yeah. And they're like these kind of trashy fantasy novels about an old lady, like, going out and having adventures. And, uh, you know, there's uh, there's a bit of shit talked about them. Jane thinks they're dumb, but, like, Oliver kind of is into them. But then a maid that Jane has paid for this specific service comes and finds her to tell her that Titus has brought in yet another doctor. So Jane rushes back to get rid of him, which is hard because he's like he actually believes that his idiotic theories are right instead of just being a quack. And then uh, Jane and Oliver meet up at yet another party. And this is the one where they have the sexy balcony conversation. 
where Jane basically spills all her problems to him, and he tells her about Bradenton's plan, which I was like, wait, what? <laughs> this is the yeah, point where right? I was like, wait, hold on a second. He just told her? And, uh, like, there's no, like, misunderstanding. They're just super honest with each other for an entire scene. It's really strange. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I forgot that's how it happens. Whenever I was rereading it, I went, oh, shit. Yeah. Because I, even having read it, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot 10 things I hate about you. And then I went, oh, that's right. It's not it's 10 not. things I hate about it's you. It's really not. But it is. But it's not. Yeah. So they basically keep just like drooling over each other. Like this whole scene is them being really honest and then like punctuated by how much they want to fuck each other. And they also uh, discuss like their personal histories and their quirks of character. Like, again, I don't want to skim over this stuff, but there's a lot of it because this book really is about how Jane and Oliver like change as people. But and Oliver especially. Actually, this isn't about that. This is about how Oliver changes as a person. Yeah. I mean, Jane does change, but, like, Jane grows into herself and, like, kind yes. of realizes ambitions that she never knew she had before. Whereas Oliver has to course correct. Um, and so we have to know how he became the person he is today, which is basically by, like, getting tired of constantly doing the right thing and running into a wall of resistance for doing it. And that's extremely relatable. For me, that's extremely relatable. Like, eventually, at some point, you just really want to stop caring. And, like, you want to stop fighting against the system. It's too hard. Everybody's against you. There's so much money against it. There's so much power. And, like, it's really super relatable. It is. It's very powerful. Yeah. I want to get that out of the way because, you know, I'm probably going to rip on Oliver a lot more as I continue to (laughs) To be fair, he deserves it. Jane and the Johnson twins go walking in, like, some botanical gardens, I think? Yeah. And Bradenton is there. And he, like, asks to talk to Jane privately and takes her into this greenhouse so that he can just, like, be terrible to her. Like, this guy is... He so can't handle all these insults that she throws at him when they see each other. And he thinks she's just like really is out of line. So he brings her in and he like shows her this cactus and it's all twisted and deformed and says it's her and then like smashes it with his cane. Yeah, right? Like what the fuck is wrong with him? Yeah, all this really inappropriate stuff. And Jane is like trying to get out of this and like trying to leave him room to be like, no, Mr. Bradenton, I'm sure you didn't actually mean to do this. Let's go back outside, shall we? You know, yeah. and but he's like, ah, woman. And he does this in full view of the fucking Johnson twins. Yeah, right. Because he's in a greenhouse and the walls are made of glass. <laughs> <laughs> and so he like storms out and Jane is all like shaking from the encounter. And then the Johnson twins uh, basically decide to, to be friends with her after all, like actual friends. And she decides to be friends with them because she was just using them, too. And so, yeah, so fuck Bradenton so much that friendship. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And uh, also fuck him so much that Jane and Oliver decide they're going to organize this dinner with Bradenton and all the Republican friends of his that Oliver's trying to sway with Bradenton's vote. And at this dinner, instead of Jane being humiliated, it is Bradenton who is humiliated by Oliver and Oliver arranges things. So that the humiliation of Bradenton will actually get his friends on board with the bill. So, like, basically, instead of selling out Jane for one vote, he's sold out Bradenton for, like, nine. Yeah. And it's great. 
And then they have one more conversation where things start to get really heated. But Oliver is like, yeah, uh, sorry, dude. I was only in Cambridge for this Bradenton thing. I got to get back to politics. Uh, plus, remember how we can't yeah. ever get married? Yeah. And Jane's like, well, fuck. Yeah. But Oliver tells her that should she ever need him, she, that they're still friends. And should she ever need him, she should be in touch. But meanwhile, Titus has figured out ah. that Emily has been sneaking out to see a boy. And <gasps> this whole time, he's been thinking how Jane is such a bad influence on her because Jane is a bastard and so she's wicked-hearted or whatever. So, on a side note, I guess not really a side note, it's a direct note, Titus Fairfield sucks like a black fucking hole. Yeah, he does. He is like the quintessential good-hearted, do-nothing, worthless academic piece of crap. He's legitimately, like, acting out of a place of, like love and what he thinks is the right thing but like he only loves certain people and he will not see past his own belief system to what they actually want or need and he thinks he is better than them and that the way he thinks things should go and the way like the society that he's part of thinks things should go is how they will go yeah so like he's just he's just completely fucking dense like every time jane tries to be reasonable with him he just, like, it, it's beyond not listening to her. He just doesn't get it. He does not understand what she's saying to him, basically. And now he wants Jane gone because she's a bad influence, and he's going to send her off to live with his sister. And Jane is like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go. But uh, if you do anything to my sister, I will use all of my money, which I have a lot of, to ruin the fuck out of your good name. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, what? And she's like, yeah, motherfucker, don't fucking cross me, which is a great scene. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. And also, Oliver's, uh, Oliver has a talk with his dad, who's pretty cool. Yeah. And with his younger sister, Free, who is exactly the character that name implies. Uh, by which I mean she's a radical feminist activist, and she's fucking great. She is. Free's dope. Free's book is the fourth book. Oh, she has a book? Okay, I'm into it. So, some time passes at this point. Oliver has been getting some shit done in Parliament, and has been getting some shit done on the streets. Uh, successfully getting reformers to throw, like, an awesome reform parade march thing, which is, like, a you know, like, one of yeah. those fun protests you, you go to. Yeah. And I love how, like, they're all expecting it to be a really, like, terrible day because, like, these people are all assembling illegally and the cops are going to come down on them, but the cops are, like, on their side. So they're, like, fucking, I don't, I don't fucking see anything. What are you talking about? <laughs> which is fantastic. I know, I love that. And that should be the role of the police when the revolution comes. I'm just saying. Yeah, guys. it should. Absolutely. Anyway, Free shows up, of course, to this parade with the women's liberation wing of the movement. Yeah. Which, of course, uh, offends Oliver's beaten down liberal sensibilities because she's going to get hurt and have her dreams dashed just like his work. Mm. We also find out at this point they have an aunt in London named Freddie, who is Free's namesake, and they were super close, but Freddie has this thing where she cannot leave the house. Um, she yeah. just, like, she can't. Like, when her hand goes to the doorknob, she starts to shake. And uh, Free doesn't really get it and is like, no, you can leave the house. Just get up and leave the house. And so they're like, there's a rift between them because of that. And they're not really talking. Meanwhile, Jane has been sent off to live with Titus' sister, whose one and only job is to get her in a wedding dress as soon as possible. Uh, she's plotting to marry Jane off to a guy whose name I honestly can't remember, so we're going to call him Douchebag McGee. That's probably his name. Jane finds out about this, and she also finds out that Titus is planning now to institutionalize Emily. Yup. So, you know, she's been trying not to manufacture excuses to ask Oliver for that favor he talked about, for that friendship he talked about. 
even though she really just wants him to come back so she can uh, jump all over him. But uh, this is a legitimate thing that he could really help her with. So she goes to send him a telegram, but she's very nearly caught doing it by douchebag McGee himself. (laughs) And as a result, the telegram is hastily sent off and only contains her location and the word help, I think. Not even have her name on it, but Oliver does receive it, and he knows it's her somehow, and he drops all the shit he's been doing to come and help her. And he literally shows up in the nick of time, literally rescues Jane from douchebag McGee at gunpoint. Yeah! And goes with her to find Emily. And uh, they have a very sexy horsey ride on the way. They do. Um, where they finally admit they're both carrying full day tickets to the Bone Zone. <laughs> and uh, while they are, they stop at an inn on the way and they get the fuck on. And it's, uh, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, I honestly think the the horse ride is is the sexier part of the whole thing. I agree. But the sex scene itself is fine. I, I don't think it's so good as to justify being the only sex scene in the book. Yes, I know. I forgot it was the only sex scene in the book. Whenever I gave you the choice of like how sexy a book might be. I had forgotten how far down the scale of like quantity and quality of sexiness this book was. So I I gave you a romance novel, but I almost gave you like a virginal romance novel. And I do apologize. (laughs) I should have given you something far hornier. And I've been remiss in my duties. Look, it's okay. I just like when they didn't have sex right away at the beginning, Jane and Oliver, I kind of resigned myself to the fact that them having sex was going to be a big deal. And so we might only get one of them. But I thought for sure we were getting an Emily Anjan sex scene. I know. I know what you mean. And I was like... I feel a little cheated about that. I was like, all right. Like, you know, that's fine. Uh, But... um, (laughs) It's like somebody had this big chocolate cake and they're like, hey, you want this, like, cookie? And I'm like, no. Yeah. I want the cake. cake. And they're like, well, you can't have any. Like, well, fine. I guess I'll take the cookie. So is this, like closer to standard like what what is industry standard for number of sex scenes in a book is this an outlier did tessa dare spoil me i would say that this is a little unusual uh-huh. okay i am pretty picky and if a book only has one sex scene in it i tend to think of it as like a failure in their duties okay i'm like why do you think i came here i came here to be emotionally and hornily moved and if you are only doing one of those what are you even doing and so while this is very emotionally moving i am like oh you really dropped the ball in the second part of this deal yeah yeah tessa dare to me is more typical with the between four to six. Mm-hmm. But Sarah McLean, who I'm definitely going to expose you to in the future, sometimes might have a lot more clandestine heated makeouts and then also more sex. Mm-hmm. So you might get something like eight different like encounters. I gotcha. Right on. Yeah, it really depends on the author. Some authors are known as being like warm rather than hot. Courtney Milan tends to be a little bit more between warm than than she is like close to hot, but usually somewhere between warm and hot because the books after this have a little bit more sex. Okay, I was about to ask. Yeah, do the other Courtney Milan books have more sex in them? The one after this, which I just read because I love it so much, definitely has a little bit more, but it's also the payoff is is much bigger. Mm, Okay. I know. These are important considerations yeah. in your reading time. Yeah, because you're like, how much time do I have? If this is not going to deliver, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm starting to get upset when I try to read like other novels that don't have sex scenes in them. I'm like, what the fuck? I what know, are you doing? That's where 
that's where I'm at. Like, if I read another, if I read a fantasy book or something and it has no sex, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> fantasy for losers? <laughs> I know. I'm a monster. I'm a horny monster. We all are. People just try to hide it more than others. I know. Come on, everybody. Embrace your horny monster. Embrace your horny... Well, I mean, yeah, but not, not that much. Embrace it less than that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So Jane and Oliver go to rescue Emily from Titus, but she isn't there. She's run away to find Anjan, who has been missing her since she mysteriously stopped sneaking out to meet him since she was on lockdown. She finds him, and by now he's, uh, you know, sort of a lawyer. He's like a minor lawyer, a, a level one yeah. lawyer, so he can help her legally at least somewhat. lawyer. <laughs> but he can help her most by marrying her uh, so that she is no longer in the legal guardianship of Titus. That is the best thing he can do. And he's like, okay, I can do that. Yeah. There's a super delightful scene with Emily and Anjan and Anjan's mom, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's so good. But the point is that uh, after all of this, Emily saved herself, basically. And eventually Jane and Oliver find her and realize that she's okay, you know, which is great. But it also means that it's kind of back to the shelf with their impossible relationship. That's impossible because of Oliver's political ambitions. Yeah. Because, like, you know, while they were doing this, you know, he kind of felt like, oh, this is, like, stolen time and everything. But even, like, right after having sex, Courtney Milan is very clear to foreshadow that they are breaking up. Yeah. Because this relationship, as it stands, with the people that they are, cannot survive the real world. And at this point, I'm sitting here going, like, I mean, that's true. Yeah, right? How are you going to wrap this up? Because, like, I don't see a way out of this. Which the fact that she finds one is, is amazing. So Emily's okay. She's like they've all met up with each other. They're all in London together and shit. And but it's at this point that we find out that Freddie has died. Yeah. And Oliver's mom comes to give him the news, and she's like, "Look, I know you're here with a woman. Like it's not that hard to figure out. Is she like special to you? Because if she is, you should bring her to the funeral." You know, like you could use all the comfort you can get. And, and, you know, if she matters to you, she matters to your family. Bring her to the funeral. And Oliver's like, "Uh, (laughs) noncommittal. But, you know, by being noncommittal, he is essentially committed because he has said that uh, he will not basically be seen in public with her. Yeah. And so Jane, who was very prepared, very much wanted to be the person to help him through this. Is like, look, dude, what I've learned from this experience is that I'm awesome (laughs) (laughs) and that I should not let people be telling me I'm not. So if you uh, don't think that I'm worth being seen in public for, then thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you uh, you being my first fuck and um, go right to hell because I'm I'm out. If you don't see my value, essentially, I don't have time for you. I got better people to move on to. And he is like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, it isn't long before he comes to his senses and goes to find her. This is what I was talking about, about how, like, it kind of is 10 Things I Hate About You. Because, like, yeah. Bradenton is out of the story midway through. So, like, that shit is not the arc of the, the story. But the arc of the story is he wanted to be with her on his own terms. Like, nobody was bribing him, but he would not be with her unconditionally. Yeah. There need to be a set, like, turns out there's a time limit, turns out there's conditions, turns out that we can't actually get married because I'm not willing to to change for you, right? Like, 
when she finally realizes this and understands how little he is willing or like how hard it's going to be for him, how impossible he finds it to give up his life for her, um, then she's she moves on. And then he does have to go and chase her down and confess his cowardice. Yeah. At caring so much about what society is going to think of his love for her. Because, like, at a certain point, you get it in one sense where it's like, yeah, man, he's worked really hard for this. Oliver wants to be fucking prime minister. Like, he is well within his rights to be like, I'm sorry, this is actually what I want. Yeah. But it's not just about realizing that he is more in love with Jane than he is with his ambitions. It's also about realizing that the system that he's trying so hard to get to the top of hates him. Yeah. And it hates both of them, but Jane is choosing to stand in the face of it, as is his own sister. Yeah. But Oliver, meanwhile, has has chosen to go along with it. And in rejecting Jane is also, like, rejecting his true self. And it's at this point, actually, before he even goes to her, that he finds out that his aunt, Freddie, was the author of the Mrs. Larriger books. Yeah! I love that. It's probably my favorite part of the story. This woman who could not leave her house, channeled the energy of not being able to leave her house into these stories about a woman who leaves her house and has all these amazing adventures. And I think Oliver realizes when he finds that out that even her, even this person who was so scared she couldn't walk outside was like braver than he was because she lived her adventures in one form or another. She fucking was true to herself and did not deny the truth of herself despite the obstacles in her way. Yeah. And so he shows up and he says, Jane, you are not a blight. You are not a disease. You are not a pestilence or a poison. You're a beautiful, brilliant, bold woman, the best I've ever met. I should never have implied that you were lacking. The fault was in me. I didn't think I was strong enough to stand at your side. He goes down and asks her to marry him. She says, what about your career? He says, I want a career, but not that one. Not the career where I hold my tongue as other men berate women for wearing too much lace. Not one where I keep quiet while my youngest sister appears before a magistrate for the crime of speaking too loudly. Not one where the price of my power is silence about the things I hold most dear. I don't want you to compromise yourself to be any less than you are. I won't ask you to change from me because I've realized that I need you precisely as you are. I don't need that quiet wife. I need you, someone bold, someone who won't let me stand back for myself and who will tell me in no uncertain terms when I've erred. I've needed you to shock me out of the biggest mistake of my life, to make me recognize my fears and reach into the fire and grab hold of the coals. I need you, Jane, and I love you more dearly than I can say. Yeah! So very, very good. Um, There's more. (laughs) Anything is bearable if you can fight it, but if you must sit back and take it, that breaks you in a way I can't explain. I made excuse after excuse for myself as I grew more quiet. I was being pushed, forced into it. It was temporary. I'd stop once I got out of there. But deep down, I've always known the truth. I wasn't brave enough to keep talking. I learned to shut up so loudly that I never managed to unlearn it afterward. Um, So yeah, it's an amazing, amazing scene. And then we get one last scene where Jane is hosting a party for one of the many charitable endeavors she's funding with her fucking money. Yeah. And Oliver is trolling the crowd for votes and uh, generally standing secondary to and in awe and devotion of his wife. 
Yeah. So it's very, very, very good ending and uh, really turned me around on the entire book. Yay. All right, Miles, I am going to ask you first what you thought of this one. And I know you only have a little bit to compare it to. And then I would kind of like to know what kind of romance novels you are interested in based on the fact that these are the three you have read now. So what did you think of this one? I love the ending. I love how it shapes up. I think that Milan is extraordinarily skillful and I can see what she's doing and I can see how good she is at weaving a plot together. Yeah. The way that like the thing with his aunt plays into it and the Mrs. Larriger books play into it. And like, she's really, really good at plotting. Um, and the message is of course, I mean, this is basically a metaphorical argument for opposing the system directly as opposed to trying to change it from the inside. Yeah. And, and I'm very much in favor of that. So I think the romance was not there for me. And honestly, I might have liked it more if it wasn't a romance novel. I can understand that. If it was just the story of these people. I mean, even if they have a have a romance, like it's fine. But like if less time was devoted to the sex scene, to like their hotness for each other. Um, yeah, I think it would have been easier for me because I that was my main hang up is that I didn't really buy the, the central connection. I agree. But, like, after they fell in love, like, I bought their, like, I bought his proposal. You know what I mean? I just didn't buy, like, the instant, like, you know, oh, my God, we're so horny for each other right away thing. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Like you said. I know. I totally get how these two people would fall for each other. It makes so much sense. Uh, and I love how they help each other. I love that he helps her see that her own value. And then she, in turn, is like, hey, guess what? You also are valuable enough. Come be by my side on this god tier that I now inhabit. <laughs> like, it's really good stuff from a character perspective. I just, it was honestly just the sexy stuff that didn't work for me. I I totally understand that. It's not a book that I feel that connection with. I think the others in the series do a better job of it. I thought that the Emily Anjan subplot was fine. I talk about how good she is at plotting, and I think that's true, but it doesn't really go anywhere. I agree. I don't think it goes anywhere in the sense that it there's not an arc to that one. Yeah, like the main thing, the main takeaway from it, I guess, is that Emily saved herself. Which is great because yeah, she's a so. disabled female character and things are not easy for her. And the fact that she's able to get herself out of her own situation is pretty empowering. And I like that. It's a really nice way of dealing with that character who you need for Jane's character. But it mm -hmm. doesn't like elegantly feed into the theme of the book in a way that like, for example, um, Freddie does. I agree. But, you know, but also like Emily read those Mrs. Larry books and loved them and they inspired her. So there's a little bit there, but it's just not not as strong. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought it was a really good book. Um, I don't know how many times I'll go back to it. I think that it's interesting because Tessa Dare's books feel like, you know, this fun thing that I've never really read before. And like, you know, it's like, oh, cool. This is like really, you know, fast moving plot. And just like, here we go. We're here. We're here. We're here. Ooh, we're having sex. Cool. Oh, shit. We're not having sex anymore. Oh, no, we're having sex again. You know, like. <laughs> it is like that. It's a sex roller coaster. Yeah, exactly. And so 
they're really enjoyable to read, and I imagine they're very enjoyable to reread. Um, yeah. I'm not put off by the heaviness of the themes of this book, but I just don't think it's quite the right genre for me. Like, if this whole thing was done the exact same way, but instead of a romance novel, it was a fantasy or a sci-fi, just because I'm into genre fiction or like... Yeah. I'd be super into it, and I would be probably raving about it to everyone I met, but I just think some of the genre conventions just let it down a little bit. I can see that. Yeah. And even the Regency period, to a certain extent, I don't... Maybe it's just because, like, you know, there are still, you know, marches for, like, women's freedom and, like, enfranchisement is still a thing. It felt weirdly modern to me, in a way, which I didn't... Oh, see, I love that about a romance novel that feels like, oh, wow, this feels modern, even in its, you know, period piece Mm -hmm. finery. Well, Tessa Dares feel modern in the writing. You know, like the the writing style is very modern. Definitely. But I don't know. I was having a bit of a hard time getting a grasp on the setting as well, because I think it was a little bit different than a lot of Regency stuff I'd read. I think the themes were far and away the strongest part of it, and the themes are are the most important part of anything for me. So in that regard, mm-hmm. it was a big success. And I think the character work was really strong. Plotting was really strong. I, I just think I would have liked it better if it wasn't a Regency romance. All right. Yeah. Then I'm going to pivot on my second question. Okay. Are you interested in reading Sebastian and Violet's book or Frederica's book? Frederica's book for sure. Because I love that character and she wasn't in it enough for my taste. Yeah, I know. She's great. Sebastian's book, maybe? I, yeah, he just seems kind of like a douchebag. Interesting. I don't know. Like, Interesting. He's very into himself and... Oh, I I want you to read it so bad now. Okay. You don't have to. I Obviously, I can't make right. you until I get another 10 points, but... I think Sebastian's book will be very different than you think it's going to be. Okay. Well, I might give it a shot. I'm very interested. In it. And and that's Countess Conspiracy, right? Yes. And that one is about science. You know, I gave Tessa Dare the benefit of going from the, the Duke book to the Rake book. You know, so maybe yeah. Sebastian is definitely the Rake to Oliver's Duke. So, you know, there you go. And so, Miles... How do you feel about romance novels overall right now? Given you've you've now experienced three of them. Yes, because I read uh, I read the Governess Game, which was the next Tessa Dare book on my own time, because that's how much yes. I enjoyed Dutch Steel. Yeah, no, I'm in favor. I mean, I, I have come away from all three books with an overwhelmingly positive opinion toward them and their authors. Awesome. Not just because I enjoyed the experience of reading a romance novel, but because all three of them were like extraordinarily well written and well crafted books. So I am now a romance novel apologist (laughs) to the extent that in my upcoming one page feature for Yes Magazine, which which I do quarterly um, for that publication, which is called The Page That Counts. It is a, a page full of like numbers and statistics that tell little stories. And one of my stat stories for the upcoming page that counts is about romance novels, about how they don't get no respect. So I I wanted to put that together because it was on my mind. I have purchased books about the genre now. Are you serious? You're reading about the genre as a whole yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, God, I got to, you tell me stuff about it because you're going to know way more than me. I bought Beyond Heaving Bosoms, uh, The Smart Bitch's Guide to Romance Novels. 
Nice. Uh, and I bought a book called Dangerous Books for Girls, The Bad Reputation of Romance Novels Explained. Oh, my God. As I am with scholarly articles, so you are with hard-hitting nonfiction books. Look, I, I fucking... I there's, there's very little I love more than hard-hitting nonfiction, so... <laughs> well... Uh, now I am very curious if I pick something really goofy and bizarre for the third one. I'm curious how you'll feel about it. Just to test the waters. How does the phrase ice planet barbarians feel to you? Like something I would read normally. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Good. Good sign. And on that note, it is time to talk about the sights, sounds and feels of this particular book. And so, Miles, in this book, what did your elf eyes see? Uh, my elf eyes had a spectacular mental image of Oliver coming in for his final proposal, wearing the fuchsine. Yes! <laughs> it was one of my favorite things about how she starts wrapping up that part, because the beginning of the book where she shows up in the fuchsine dress, uh. which is like this offensive shade of pink. And when Oliver comes to propose to her, he is wearing, uh, I believe it's a jacket that is the, the fuchsia color, because he's demonstrating oh. to her that he is now willing to stand out from the crowd like she is and to follow her lead. And it was glorious. I love it. Megan Bob, what did your elf eyes see? I hate it, but Titus, mm. because every description of his like mournful face and disappointed tone of voice is so incredible to me because it would be so simple to take a character who is kind of the villain of the piece and make him over the top and self-aware evil and like, ma ha ha, I hate you. I'm doing this because I hate you. But because Titus is never doing it out of those motives, instead you end up with this banality of evil mm -hmm. that is so much more real and frustrating. I find all that stuff that Courtney Milan does to make Titus not relatable at all, <laughs> but to make him a very different kind of antagonist is such a powerful move that makes it all the more frustrating and urgent that Jane and Emily get away. Oh, God, there isn't a Titus book, is there? No, okay, no, good. no. Just making sure. Titus dies alone and unloved. Good. OK, cool. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I totally agree with everything you said. So, Miles, what did your Vulcan ears hear? Usually, I like to pick out a line of dialogue for this, and this one is a line from, well, it's an exchange between Oliver and Free when- <gasps> Oh my god, Miles, we might have picked the exact same one. Are you serious? Okay, hold on. So, when he first goes to- when we first meet her, when she talks about how she wants him to, like, help her, like, get into school and shit, and, like, he says, I worry about you. I'm afraid that you're going to break your heart going up against the world. And she says, no- I'm going to break the world. Oh, I chose one from like the next page <laughs> because we are the same person. <laughs> what is your Vulcanius here? He's kind of explaining to her, you can't be the first woman to go to Cambridge. Do you know what it's going to be like? It's going to be horrible and everybody's going to be your enemy and you're going to be treated terribly. It's going to be a nightmare. And he also says, you're always going to be the girl who went to Oxford. That will be who you become. To Cambridge, yeah. And she says, someone will have to be the girl who went, she said. 
Why shouldn't it be me? And don't worry, I have no intention that getting a college degree will be the last of the dreadful things I do. I'd rather be the girl who did instead of the girl who didn't. Mm. Very uh, emblematic of the theme, and I, I love that we both, t- <laughs> we both took stuff from the same fucking scene. <laughs> I know. Oh. I Now I'm curious. Miles, what did your human heart feel? I was going to say something like the the overall impressiveness of like the narrative and like how much it brought me back and how much it made me, you know, really care about these characters and, and all this and how much it really like it put me in a revolutionary frame of mind. You know what I mean? Like I really yeah. like, like that's that was really what my human heart felt. But honestly, if we're going to talk about the scene that like absent the themes moved me the most just on a character level. Um, yeah. I really love the scene where the twins are like, holy shit, that guy's an asshole. Are you okay? Let's be friends. Yes, I love that scene so much. I almost picked that. Yeah, that was really like, I was like, aww. I know. And then you find out that one of the twins is asexual. Yeah. And like never wants to get married. And it's like, oh, being touched by someone like that, that seems really gross. Like, I, I just don't want that. I forgot about that, too. But yeah, that's great. I, th- again, more representation just squeezed in here. Courtney Milan really doing some good work. Yeah, Courtney Milan's great. Bob, what does your human heart feel? I love Anjan and Emily's story a lot, even though it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't seem to relate as much to the themes and it doesn't go as it doesn't particularly go anywhere. It's just a nice story. Mm-hmm. But I mean, never let it be said that Megan Bob is against something that's just a nice story. I don't think anyone would say that. There's a moment whenever Emily goes to the law firm or whatever it is that Anjan is working at. So Emily goes to the law firm where Anjan is working now and Anjan's like, friend is a strong word, but I guess like person who's not totally against him, who's kind of like helping him get a job and stuff is there. Mm-hmm. And Emily goes to see him and is like, you know, I want to see Anjan. And so he goes and sees him and, you know, is basically like, hey, I want to get married to you. Please, <laughs> let's do this. And she's going to be, you know, Mrs. Bhattacharya. Mm-hmm. And his asshole friend is like, calling Anjan baddie yeah, because you can't say Bhattacharya. They all do. I know. And I fucking hate that. And then Emily's like, it's Bhattacharya and you better learn to say it because it's going to be my name. That is a really great line. I know. It's like, learn his goddamn name, you fuck bucket. Right. And like, way to use your white privilege to step up and hold other white people accountable. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And Emily is great. Like, I love her. And I love the fact that she stands up for him. I love the fact that part of the reason that he falls for her is that she's so aggressively not racist. Yeah. I didn't even mention in my mansplanation the scene where Anjan goes to talk to Titus and, like... I love that scene! ...rings the racism out of him and makes him fucking say it. And then he's like, no, you know, that's nice. Actually, fuck you, though. I'm marrying your niece anyway. I love that one so much. There's so much in this book, guys. So that is the journey that we have been on. We have read The Heiress Effect by Courtney Milan. Thank you so much for this, Bob. Oh, yay. I'm so glad you went on this journey with me. I don't have a cheap pop quiz, but yeah, I'm glad that you read it. And uh, I hope to earn a billion more points so I can do more of this with you. We will see. I I hope you earn points too, but uh, I'm still going to try and stump you because otherwise, what's the fun? hey i want to earn those points honestly that's right all right guys well uh thank you so much for listening and uh this is our second romance novel episode so if you are looking for podcasts that are just exclusively about pro wrestling i'm afraid 
with ours, you also have to deal with uh, with romance and also occasionally baking. Uh, so, <laughs> but yeah, you know what? Wouldn't be our podcast if you didn't. So um, hopefully you've yeah. enjoyed this ride along right along with us. Hopefully you've read and enjoyed the Eris effect. And if you haven't, I strongly encourage you to go check it out. And uh, thanks again, Bob, for bringing that into the podcast universe. Yeah, thank you. And if anybody out there needs recommendations for a romance novel to read, guys, you know where I live on the internet. <laughs> At Megan Bobness. Yes. And if anybody needs suggestions for terrible nonfiction to read, at MJ Schneiderman, <laughs> I can, I'll give you some fucking shit. <laughs> you want some of the fucking themes of this book without the romance part of it, I'll give you some recommendations. Oh my God. <laughs> if I must suffer, all must suffer with me. Oh my God. Miles, you can read half of your books. You don't have to do this to yourself. <laughs> Shut up. I'm going to go back to reading The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Oh my God. Well, okay. I'm going to go back to reading Nine Rules to Break when courting a rake. There you so. go. <laughs> that is Miles and Making Bob in a nutshell. <laughs> and with that, we will see you again for this episode at some point in the future. Bye! Consenting adults. Yeah, exactly. Between humans that are of age. Hell, why between humans? Between, yeah, we'll just say adults. Aliens can be adults. <laughs> I assume. I know nothing of their cultures, but who I knows? mean, look. I, you know what? I know some things. I read the Animorphs books. There's aliens in that. You know, like, their childhoods are probably spent in, like, larval stages, so it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're not even sexual at that right. stage. They're just blorping around eating eating moss? I don't know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs>The main characters were without a single exception white. Nope. Oh, hold for barks. Barks. I feel, yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't want to be lulled into a false sense of security. Uh, is there one more bark coming? Maybe not. Courtney Milan is a sig. Yep, there it is. Oh my god, Mulder. Why are you like this? You're the loudest bathroom rug. <laughs>